656 that was. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morasheth during the reign of Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. The vision he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, O peoples, all of you, listen, O earth and all who are in it, that the sovereign Lord may witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads the high places of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him and the valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. All this is because of Jacob's transgression, because of the sins of the house of Israel. What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? What is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore I will make Samaria a heap of rubble, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour her stones into the valley and lay bare her foundations. All her idols will be broken to pieces. All her temple gifts will be burned with fire. I will destroy all her images. Since she gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes, as the wages of prostitutes, they will, be again, they will again be used. Because of this, I will weep and wail. I will go about barefoot and naked. I will howl like a jackal and moan like an owl. For her wound is incurable. It has come to Judah. It has reached the very gate of my people, even to Jerusalem itself. Tell it not in Gath, weep not at all. In Beth, Ophrah, roll in the dust. Pass on in dark, in nakedness and shame, you who live in Shefer. Those who live in Zayanan will not come out. Beth Izal is in mourning. Its protection is taken from you. Those who live in Maroth writhe in pain, waiting for relief, because disaster has come from the Lord, even to the gate of Jerusalem. You who live in Lachish, harness the team to the chariot. You were the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for the transgressions of Israel were found in you. Therefore, you will give parting gifts to Morsheth Gath. The town of Akzib will prove deceptive to the kings of Israel. I will bring a conqueror against you who live in Marashah. He who is the glory of Israel will come to Adullam. Shave your heads in mourning for the children in whom you delight. Make yourselves as bald as the vulture, for they will go from you into exile. Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light they carry it out because it, it is in their power to do it. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them. They defraud a man of his home, a fellow man of his inheritance. Therefore, the Lord says, I am planning disaster against this people from which you cannot save yourselves. You will no longer walk proudly, for it will be a time of calamity. In that day, men will ridicule you. They will taunt you with this mournful song. We are utterly ruined. My people's possession is divided up. He takes it from me. 
He signs our fields to traitors. Therefore, you will have no one in the assembly of the Lord to divide the land by lot. Do not prophesy, their prophets say. Do not prophesy about these things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should it be said, O house of Jacob, is the spirit of of the Lord angry? Does he do such things? Do not my words do good to him whose ways are upright? Lately, my people have risen up like an enemy. You strip off the rich robe from those who pass by without a care, like men returning from battle. You drive the women of my people from their pleasant homes. You take away my blessing from their children forever. Get up, go away, for this is not your resting place because it is defiled. It is ruined beyond all remedy. If a liar and a a deceiver comes and says, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, he would be just the prophet to this people. I will surely gather all of you, O Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I'll bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in in its pasture. The place will throng with people. One who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before them, the Lord at their head. This is the word of the Lord. The New Testament reading this morning is from Acts chapter 17, verses some 22 to 31 on page 785. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now, what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands, as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. This is the the word of the Lord. 
As Russ flagged earlier, we are beginning a new series in Micah. We've spent the last uh, few weeks looking at the Holy Spirit, but a new series in Micah. Uh, also to bring to your attention, there are a few uh, new arrivals in our congregation. I don't mean people who are visiting necessarily today, uh, but Ed is, uh, well, he and Bridge, uh, proud new parents of George Hugo Yorston, born Friday, uh, and all went well. And uh, to add to that, Uh, The Codes, who up until a few months ago were part of our congregation, welcomed yesterday uh, Annabelle Adelaide Code, and uh, all went well on that front as well. So just keep you in touch with the great new arrivals that God has blessed our uh, broader community with. How about I pray that God might speak to us through Micah and give thanks for life. Uh, Lord and Father, we thank you that you are the giver of life, uh, that you give us birth, and through your word and spirit, you give us new birth. Uh, Father, we do ask uh, for blessing upon both George and Annabelle. Uh, We ask that in the years to come, uh, they would always know just how loved they are by you. Uh, And Father, as well as we turn our thoughts to hear you speak to us from your word, uh, help us see how much you want to bless us as well through your word. Uh, Even in difficult passages, Father, we know uh, that you want what is good for us by revealing yourself. So we pray this morning by your spirit, you would reveal yourself clearly. We would know you better that we might love you more. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Jesus made very clear God's values. So when he was asked uh, some time ago about the greatest commandment, uh, you might remember he cherry-picked a few spots from the Old Testament. Uh, He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. And he said, love your neighbour as yourself. That's what God values. God values true worship. He loves... He values us loving him with everything we've got. And he values real justice. He, he, he values us loving others with the same level and kind of commitment that we have to, to loving ourselves, which is, you know, let's be honest, fairly high. And if you've been around Christian circles at least for some time, uh, you'd know that. Yeah, and, and you'd probably think, yeah, I'm on board with that, the whole love God, love neighbour, yep, that's me, I'm there. What I've been struck with as I've read Micah recently in the last week and the last few weeks is just how big a gap there is between God's concern for worship and justice and mine. Because we know, yep, God values true worship, but uh, so often I know I live indifferent to unbelief. You know, the, uh, the Thai res- restaurants that um, I used to live near in Newtown, there's a whole strip of great Thai restaurants. They have little idols in the front that you go past and, you know, I'd eat there without a second thought to the grief that it must have been to God to have people trapped in false worship. Now, indifferently, we, we kind of rub shoulders with colleagues who, who worship money or pleasure and it doesn't really disturb us. Now, we know God values real justice, uh, but it's often, you know, it's only when we're the one who's, uh, who get disadvantaged do we actually get stirred up. Um, this year's Eurovision Song Contest, for those who've been kind of watching with a keen eye, it's in Baku, Azerbaijan. Uh, in Baku, uh, the government sees everything and dissident voices are locked up. Uh, but that won't get noticed as you know, Europe looks on at one big party. You know, the political attention here at the moment on Craig Thompson, uh, allegations of, of inappropriate conduct, and, but you can't help but feel that a lot of the parliamentary interest is actually self-interested rather than a desire for justice. As we spend the next uh, six weeks, six Sunday mornings, looking at Micah, it will do us all good to realise afresh 
just how God is unique in his passion for true worship and real justice. Uh, to give you a little context, because most of us don't know where Micah came and where he's from, and really you can read Morosheth and you go, oh, thanks. Uh, to give a little context, uh, the kings that we mentioned in 1 verse 1 put Micah's ministry somewhere about 742 BC and 686 BC. Okay, so we're talking 8th century BC, around the 700s. Uh, what was going on in those times? Uh, God's kingdom, two, about two centuries before, had split into two a north Israel uh, and the south Judah. It was a time, though, of turmoil. Uh, Assyria was the superpower of the day, they were kind of up to the north and across to the east. Uh, they were a menacing pressure on Israel and all the neighbouring countries. That is, they, they, in, in the era Micah is preaching, uh, they, the Assyrians violently expanded their empire. They, they took the northern kingdom in Micah's time. Uh, and so down in the south, Judah would have had its fair share of refugees from conflicts in the north, and in fact the Assyrians came in to get them at some point. Uh, with all that kind of turmoil going on, what is it that God thinks they need to hear? They need to hear about divine justice. You know, Micah's name uh, means who is like Yahweh, who is like the Lord. Uh, and if you flick over a page or two to 7, chapter 7, verse 18, right at the end of the book, uh, it finishes with that question, seven eighteen: who is like you, O God? Who is a God like you? Yeah, and these opening chapters uh, confront us all with you know, the Lord who is unique, the Lord who takes idolatry and injustice so seriously. And that's perhaps how it might confront you this morning, you know, that no one is like the Lord with his sense of divine justice. Two things I want us to grasp from Micah's opening chapters. First, that God will judge idolatry devastatingly. And secondly, that he will judge injustice devastatingly. First, he'll judge idolatry. Uh, the, the opening image of Micah 1, it, it's a legal picture. Uh, a summons is put in verse 2 to the whole earth. This uh, cosmic courtroom is set up and, and all earth is summoned and God is going to come down from his heavenly dwelling. You know, that is the true holy temple, not the replica on earth. And he is going to come not just as the judge, he's actually coming as the accuser. He is coming to bear witness and bring an accusation. You know, God is not distant to the matters of human life. Uh, he, even more, is not safe. In verse 4, when he comes, mountains melt, valleys split. It's kind of like you know, hot wax just kind of pouring away. Um, it's meant to generate fear. Uh, yes, it's symbolic language, but, but symbolism always means something. It points to something. It points to the fact that there is nothing that can stand in God's way when he comes. You know, we should tremble at the prospect of his coming. But also it's there to hook Micah's audience in. Now remember that the menace, the menacing might of Assyria is looming and coming and threatening and wouldn't they have loved to hear, great, God is coming to judge. He summoned the peoples of the earth, super, until the twist of verse 5. All this is because of Jacob's transgression, because of the sins of the house of Israel. That is, God is taking action in this court against his own people. Why? Because he takes idolatry and unbelief and I, seriously. You know, the, the high places in verse 5 were, were places of pagan worship, but Israel have set them up in their own home. Yeah, and what is paralleled in Samaria, the capital city of the north, it's being done most offensively down in Jerusalem, you know, God's capital where the temple was. They're doing the same things. You know, just as God's people would have gone, 
You know, amen, Lord, you come and judge those people over there. It's about time they got it. Just at that moment, the tables are turned. Now, in verse 7, it's God's people who are the ones who've been engaging in temple prostitution, distorting true worship. And when he comes, it's them who should tremble. Now, Samaria, the, the capital city of the north, was uh, strategically built to be well defended. Uh, it was built on a, on a hill about 300 foot high. Uh, it had these kind of slopes down where you know, vineyards were all over it. To uh, the west, uh, there was a mountain range, so the invading armies couldn't kind of sneak up there. You can't get a chariot over a mountain. And then on the other side, you could, just, you could look down from the hill on the plains to see them approaching. But that fortress, Samaria, in verse 6, the promise is it will be reduced to rubble. They're not safe. And you can imagine their shock. You know, it's like God saying, you know, I'm coming to destroy the unbelief of Sydney and I'm beginning with your church, with our church. Which is exactly what God promises in 1 Peter 4.17, that it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. That is, God takes it seriously, idolatry seriously in anyone and everyone. You know, we might trivialise unbelief and idolatry. You know, we, we might trivialise not loving God wholeheartedly, but, but divine justice doesn't. You know, Micah's words are not so much about, you know, watch out, you godless out there, but the focus on those who profess to have a relationship with God and yet abandon it. You know, to them, God will come in judgment and the effects are devastating. You know, God is not like us when it comes to true worship. He takes it seriously. Just as he takes seriously our treatment of others. We see, secondly, his, his judgment of injustice that's devastating. In chapter 2, uh, again, it opens with a warning, woe. You know, woe to those who, who plan iniquity and plot evil on their beds. You know, normally, um, thieves operate at night. But woe here to those who are powerful enough that they can you know, spend the night planning daylight robbery. Because... You know, they, they, they take advantage, they covet, they seize other, prop, other people's property. Why? Because in verse 1, they've got the power to do it. They can. You know, they do because they can. Yeah, they are gripped by their greed and they despise people. So in verse 8, 2 verse 8, you see that God's people have risen up like an enemy. They are acting like God's enemies. They are, they are stripping people as, as a survivor of war would be and they are driving widows out of the land. Yeah, Assyria is not the threat. That their threat is their own lack of justice, their own indifference to it. Now, these, these powerful people seize a, a house, um, and to, to take a house in Israel wasn't just, you know, you're kicking someone out, they've got nowhere to live, it's more than that. It, it's not that just they're homeless, uh, they've lost their livelihood, but even more, they've lost their place in the people of God. Now, that's, that's the pain at the end of uh, verse Verse 9, you take away my blessing from their children forever. That is, once you didn't have some physical land in Israel, you weren't part of God's people anymore. You're taking away God's inheritance. Yeah, and again, God's judgment on those who practice injustice is devastating. Yeah, their judgment is unavoidable in verse 3. They, they cannot save themselves. It'll mean humiliation for them, uh, 
you know, verse 4 is meant to be kind of like a children's chanty song as people kind of jeer them, you know, ooh, we're utterly ruined, you know. Uh, it's, it's now time for them to be made fun of because what's happening to them is what they've been doing to others for years, you know, because it's appropriate. God will bring them to just and fair and appropriate ruin. Micah is clear, God doesn't trivialise injustice. Now, there is no one like God who takes the love of him and, and the love of neighbour, not just as something you should aspire to, but he actually says it's something we are accountable to do. Now, divine justice just takes these things so seriously. A book I read this week um, made mention of Jim Baker. Uh, Jim Baker, for those who don't recall the name, uh, was an American televangelist. He was big, particularly in the 80s. Uh, he rose from... Uh, a family of really humble origins, uh, of poverty, to incredible wealth through his uh, international Praise the Lord ministry. Uh, he didn't just preach, he, he oversaw a Christian theme park, kind of like a, a, I don't know, a Disneyland for religious folk. Uh, he, he oversaw a real estate empire and had this massive state-of-the-art television complex. Uh, and his downfall was as spectacular as his triumphs. You know, financial and sexual scandals destroyed his image. Uh, saw him serve five out of eight years of a prison sentence before he was released. And the author's point wasn't, let's have a go at tele-evangelists. Uh, and the point wasn't, you know, can't leaders do monumental big failures? That wasn't... It. His point was, Jim Baker failed because he'd spent a lifetime trivialising the little besetting sins of his life. You know, when he was finally called to account for mismanaging a budget that at its peak saw a million dollars US coming in each week in donations, he failed because he'd already set the patterns of greed in his early days when he didn't manage much at all. You know, he trivialised that unwillingness to love God with everything. He had trivialised the need to love others entirely. Now, just like we all do. You know, thinking that part of my heart where I don't love the Lord fully doesn't matter. You now I don't, I don't violently rip lands from widows. Haven't you know? Haven't done that for years. Uh, I haven't done it at all. You know, but but coveting that job, coveting that house, coveting that talent, coveting that personality that you wish you had, and going out trying to seize it as much as we can. You know, we. We, we treat it lightly, but God will judge it with devastating power. You know, who is like God who sees with such clarity how serious true worship and real justice is? You know, the seriousness of this divine justice makes perfect sense of the cross, doesn't it? You know, our, our trivial view of, of true worship would... You know, we just turn a blind eye to our hearts that are, are, are little idol-producing factories. We can just kind of look aside and go, ah, just let it go. You know, our, our trivial views of injustice, you know, the fact that we, we just concede, you know, you've got to tread on a few people if you want to climb the corporate ladder or if you want to climb the social ladder. You know, we would turn a blind eye to that and kind of go, ah, oh, it's just the way it is, isn't it? No, no. Divine justice won't let that happen. Now, God can't, can't treat what life is all about, the love of God and the love of others. He can't treat it so cheaply. Now, and who is like God who takes evil so seriously that he would send his only beloved son into the world to bear our sins? 
Uh, Romans 3 puts it, you know, Christ was that atoning sacrifice for the sins committed so that God might be both uh, the one who is completely just punishing sin but also the one who justifies sinners, makes them right in his presence. He takes on himself that devastating judgment for, for all idolatry and all injustice but for those outside Christ, the devastating judgment will still fall on At one level, Micah's words were fulfilled back in 722 BC. Uh, Assyria did conquer the north. They scattered the people of Samaria throughout their empire. Now, his words were also completed more fully when John Hicanus completely levelled the city uh, in 107 BC. But as we read in Acts 17, most profoundly these words will be fulfilled on that appointed day when the risen Lord Jesus will judge the world. And all outside Christ can only expect divine justice to deliver them devastation. Who is like the Lord who takes idolatry and injustice so seriously? Three things we should do in light of this divine justice. First, grieve the lost. Grieve the lost. We, we frequently affirm... Uh, the words of judgment and the, and the truth of judgment in the words of the creed. We did it just this morning. You know, we declare that we believe Jesus will come again in glory to judge both the living and the dead. You know, but, but, but judgment is not just a doctrine we should affirm. Uh, it needs to be felt. It needs to be grieved. You know, that's Micah's response. In, in 1 verse 8 and 9, he kind of interjects his personal response to what God is passing on. Uh, to this impending judgment. So we get the audio, visual kind of experience in verse 8. You know, audio, he, he's going to weep and wail. He says he's going to howl like a jackal. The idea is that he's long, drawn out, you know, the pitch increasing with every cry. That is, he's taking the kind of grief that you would normally keep and reserve for a family member and he's feeling it for the nation. And the visual element, he's going to go around you know, barefoot and naked, stripped and naked like a, a survivor of war. That is, he's not going to distance himself in any way from that suffering. He's just going to share in it because he knows in verse 9 that the incurable wounds of the northern kingdom are actually going to spread to the south. And then he gives the kind of content of his wailing from verse 10 and following. So he lists all these place names. Uh, they're all in an area, uh, Shephala, to the west of Judah's hill country. It's, it's actually the area he comes from. He's from Moresheth. Uh, but the importance is not so much geography uh, it's little plays on the names that he does. It's kind of you know, hilarious Hebrew stuff going on there. Uh, where you know, Shafir means beautiful and they're going to go around naked and disgraced. And, and Maroth means bitter and they're going to long for good. And Lachish, it sounds like the word Rekesh, which is the word for horses. And, and there's going to be some chariots there. The idea is he's just saying that everywhere in God's nation they'll receive appropriate but devastating judgment. It'll fit the place. Yeah, and the climax of what he's saying is in verse 16. It's the invitation, come and share the grief with me. Shave your head, mourn with me, mourn alongside Micah. That is, divine judgment is to be affirmed, yes, but not coldly, not distantly, not, not dispassionately. In our cadet group, we've been looking at the prophet Jonah. And there were moments of profound honesty. You know, there are really those there who... Um, we don't really long to invite to join us at the table for the eternal heavenly banquet. And I suspect it's only when we, 
we move from the intellectual affirmation of judgment and, and it moves to become an emotional concern that will ever move beyond that. You know, why don't we grieve the coming judgment? Someone I read suggested it's because of our culture that we've lost the ability to grieve. You know, we're in a, we're in a culture that's always in the, the pursuit of happiness. Uh, and as a society, we've, we've sidelined sadness. You know, you can't put on a sad face. And actually, grief has become something you do in private, not in public. Public is happiness. Private, you can grieve over there on your own. And I suspect there's a little bit of truth in that. But looking in my heart, I fear it's more because I don't share the compassion of the Lord Jesus. And in Luke 13, Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Uh, he's not weeping because he knows they're about to kill him. He's actually weeping because they refuse to come to him and be gathered into safety and come to him like a, a mother hen gathering her little chicks. Andrew Bonner wrote, I think Jesus will weep over the lost as he did over Jerusalem on the Day of Judgment. It will be something to be said forever in heaven. Jesus wept as he said, Depart, ye cursed. But then it was absolutely necessary to say it. Let's not just affirm divine justice. Let's grieve the lost. Secondly, let's proclaim the unpalatable. Now, Micah makes it clear he is under pressure to preach what people want to hear. So in 2 verse 6, the prophets don't want Micah saying what they won't, the other prophets. You know, you can imagine them explaining to Micah, you know, there's, there's really no market for a message of doom. People aren't into that. Keep, the, keep it upbeat, you know, get a positive message out there. That's what the people want to hear. You know, it'll get more cut through. You know, if you just spent more time concentrating on the mercy of God, you know, rather than this whole disaster thing. You know, in 2 verse 11, the message that they really want is that you know, good times are around the corner. You know, could there be any more kind of 21st Australian prophet than one who promises beer, wine and spirits for all? You know, that's what they want to hear. But Micah knows telling people what they want to hear won't help anyone. You know, his task is to preach what's unpalatable. You know, knowing that God is so committed to judge idolatry and injustice, only the truth will help. Yeah, and there is pressure, isn't there, for us to, to buy into the assumption that telling people bad news is the same as being bad to them, when it's not. Yeah, or the flip side, that, that you know, there's this misunderstanding of love, uh, that if you really love, you've got to affirm everything, when that's not love. You know, over and over we hear that it's unchristian to tell other people their lifestyle choices are wrong. Yeah, and that thinking creeps into to church even. A, a minister I know of stood down a youth leader for taking his girlfriend uh, on a six-week trip to Europe. And the youth leader left the church because it lacked love. Now, it's that false assumption that you know, correction is disliking. It's not. Yeah, the truly unloving thing is to let people walk unwittingly into danger. Yeah, it is not popular for you to tell your friends and neighbours that unless they follow Christ, they stand condemned. Is it popular to tell them that God will hold them accountable personally for every instance of self-interest rather than truly just behaviour? It's unpalatable, but we preach it from love. Thirdly, in light of divine justice, we need to hope in the breaker. We need to hope in Christ. 
the final, you know, the, the thrust of these, these chapters are, are, are weighty rather than optimistic, but the final two verses, 12 and 13 of chapter 2, they're cause for confidence. You know, this, this revelation of divine justice is always that God might offer hope. You know, and it is certain hope. In verse 12, it, you know, God will surely, it's an emphatic word, I will surely gather all of you. Yeah, and it is a future hope. There's the implication that judgment, or the scattering must come first, but, but it's a personal hope. God, in verse 12, he will be their shepherd. In verse 13, this breakup will deliver them. You know, like a, an unstoppable flood that breaks a dam's wall, someone will come and open up a new way of hope. And again, you know, Micah's words found some fulfilment in 701 BC. Jerusalem was delivered when the Assyrians were on the doorstep. But, but the bigger completion is the Lord Jesus, isn't it? You know, dying and rising... He broke the unbelief that stops us loving God with all our heart, soul, strength and mind. Ascending and pouring out his spirit, he breaks the the self-interest and the injustice of us not loving our neighbour as ourself. God will bring devastating judgment on all idolatry, on all injustice, ours included, but in Christ we are shielded from it all. In him we have certain and personal hope. Hang on to him. No one's like the Lord with that sense of divine justice. No one is like the Lord who takes worship and justice so seriously, but it may be the case that we all be found ready in Christ when he comes down from his dwelling place. I'm going to lead us in prayer and then I'm going to throw it open for anyone to pray as the Lord leads you and then we'll finish in song. Let me pray. Our Lord and Father, we are so thankful that you take justice seriously. You take the love of you and the love of neighbour, not as cheap things but as vitally important things. We thank you for the value you give to them. We thank you that in the face of judgment we have hope in Christ. Fill us with a love of you and a love of others, we pray. Amen.